And uh, just for your um, prophecy interest, tomorrow in our country, grand old Washington, D.C., there are peace talks scheduled. Um, that hopefully they're hoping to, to hash out some peaceful negotiation between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, and, and I just tell you that, just pay attention. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, Zechariah says that God, God says that he's going to make that, that region a cup of trembling and that anybody who tries to uh, fix it there is going to end up getting cut in pieces, you know, and, and all the rest. But, you know, for those of you that, that know prophecy, that there will be some kind of peace agreement brokered and uh, different levels at different times and all that. So just the fact that that's even happening is important to us. So pay attention to that. Watch that because uh, it says, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. So uh, be watchful, be watchful. Um, But we are in Romans chapter 12 tonight, and we are going to cover some serious ground tonight. One verse. (laughs) Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, and he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Romans chapter 12. I wonder if you've noticed. We have now completed 11 chapters of Paul's writing to the church in Rome. A letter in which, as we know, he is seeking to impart to this group of people an understanding of the gospel, which he calls the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. He wants them to understand salvation and the power of God through the gospel. It's a letter in which he is seeking to communicate in the best way that words can the grace of God as demonstrated through the cross of Christ. The heart of God towards people, towards His creation, towards mankind. The depths and the riches of the love of God that's been revealed to man by the work of God. And the steadfast faithfulness of a God who never quits nor fails to accomplish what He sets forth to do. But I wonder if you've noticed that in these exhaustive and intensive 11 chapters of all that God has done and is doing for us, that there hasn't been a single word of anything that God has asked us to do for Him. It's all been what God has done for us. That everything that we have heard so far concerning our salvation, concerning our relationship with God, Concerning our sanctification, that is, the work of God within our lives now conforming us into the image of Christ. Concerning the blessing that we receive from God as His children, His sons and daughters by adoption. Everything that we've heard so far, that it all originated with Him. That it was all His idea to do all of that, to save us and to change us and to bless us. It was His idea. And that it was also then carried out by Him. He, by Himself, performed the work of accomplishing all of those things that He set forth to do. So it was His idea, but then He's also the one that put forth the effort to accomplish His plans. And that also then, it would be all to His credit. That He would be the one that would receive the glory, because there was nothing that we did or nothing we could do to earn what He's done for us, or to help God accomplish what He's done for us. That all things, as Paul says in the last verse of chapter 11, it says, for of Him, His plan, and through Him, His power, and to Him, for His glory, are all things. That everything that we've seen in these 11 chapters that we've studied has all been God-originated. We have played no part in it at all, except that we are the beneficiaries of what God has done. He has saved us by His grace. And for 11 chapters, all we have heard is everything that God has done for us without a word of anything that God requires of us. Now, the reason for that, the reason why for 11 chapters there hasn't been any word of our responsibility 
is that this gospel, the power of God that Paul has been explaining, has originated in the perfect love of Almighty God. The Bible says that God is love. The Greek is agape. It means unconditional love. There's no precondition. There's no terms and condition. It's an unconditional kind of love that is ascribed to God in these chapters. And that kind of love only demands one thing. There's only one thing, a love like that, a love that would be demonstrated through the cross of Christ that Paul has explained to us. There's only one thing that can be done on our the receiving end. And that is to respond to it. That's all we can do is respond to the love that he's given. If God placed terms and conditions on his love, that is, things that we had to do to earn and keep it, then it wouldn't be unconditional love. John 3.16 would, would read like this. It would say, For God so tolerated the world that he gave us a list of requirements that whosoever did them might not perish, but might attain everlasting life. But that's not what that verse says. It says, for God so loved the world, agape, unconditional, that there was this unconditional, steadfast love in the heart of God towards his creation that he gave willingly, without price, without preconditions. He gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It was something that originated in the heart of a loving God that was to be bestowed upon those that would just simply receive it and respond to it. Now, true, unconditional love like this cannot be earned, it cannot be increased, it cannot be invoked, indebted, or instructed and taught. It can only be received and then responded to. That's the only thing you can do with love like that, and that is what God is looking for. He's not looking for those that would pay him back in some way and make it worth his while. He's not looking for servants that are humbled into silent submission because of what they are getting. He's not looking for names on his spiritual roster so that he can boast in the heavenlies about all those that have put their faith in him. He's not looking for any of that, but rather he's simply looking for those who have been truly impacted by the love that he has demonstrated and that will simply respond to him by loving him in return. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for those that will respond. 1 John 4.19 says that we love him because he first loved us. That our love towards God is not something that originates within us. It's not something that is our idea or an indebtedness that we carry. But rather it's something where God has demonstrated his love towards us. And that love has impacted our lives in such a powerful way that the response within us is to return the love that we've received. That we simply love him because he first loved us. However, just as God's love... The love of God originated within the person of God, within his heart. His love motivated him to do something. Because he loved us, he was motivated. What was it? Well, we know what God did. He, he, he was motivated to make man and then die for man. The, the work of the cross, redemption. But it, it was the response of God, that, that work of God was motivated by his love. Now, our sincere inward love for God will also carry an outward action. That just as God's love motivated him to do something, so also as we respond to the love that we've received, it will also motivate us to do something. There will be an outward demonstration of this inward love that we have towards God. Now, as we get into chapter 12 and onward... Uh, breaking ground in a new section of the book of Romans, Paul is going to tell us how to respond to the love that we have received from God. How do we respond? What is our response to all that we've received? Well, what do we do to demonstrate our love towards God now that he has demonstrated his love towards us? Chapter 12 begins the section of Romans that deals with service. That is, the action that springs from the love that we've received. 
Now, as we just barely scratch the surface and just touch the beginning of this as we look at verse 1, I want to share with you four things to consider and think through that Paul gives to us here concerning our response to God's love, concerning the love that we return towards Him. Four things that Paul tells us in this one little verse. Now, these four things that I'm going to share with you that Paul shares with us form the foundation and the basis for all Christian service. For all work that's done in the Lord. For all activity that's done in the church. For all fellowship that takes place in His name. And for all ministry that's done in the kingdom of God. All of it originates here in this one verse. The stem, the very tip of the roots is all right here in these four things that Paul's going to share, share to us. Everything that's done for him in his name, whether it's in church, in community, in our families, or in our lives personally, start here. So what does Paul say to us concerning this response that we have towards the love that God has bestowed upon us? The first thing he tells us right there at the beginning of the verse, which is so critical, so important, concerning this love response that we have towards God, is that it must be, first of all, of our own free will. It has to be of our own free will. The first thing, as Paul opens up this section, he says to them, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. The word beseech is a Greek word. It's parakaleo. I did it. Parakaleo. That's the word. And it means to come alongside and to call. Para means to come alongside, just like parallel or parallelogram. We get the idea of to come alongside. And then kaleo is to call. It means to beg, to entreat, to beseech, to encourage, or to strengthen. So Paul is literally coming alongside and he's beseeching, he's calling, he's encouraging, he's strengthening them to do something. Literally, he's begging his audience to make a choice. He's imploring them to make a decision. And the very nature of the choice that he's imploring them to make insists that it come from within them rather than something that is forced upon them. He doesn't say to them as he opens up this section that I command ye therefore, brethren, by the commandment of God. He doesn't say that God makes this demand now in return for all that he's done for you. He doesn't say if ye knew what was good for ye, you would, you know, do these things that he says. He doesn't use any of that language in this beseeching that he makes, but very simply, he's, he's begging them to make a decision for themselves. It's a beseeching. And, and the language demands the utmost importance concerning their consideration of the matter. It's as if he's begging them and saying, look at I've taken all of this time and shared with you all of this truth, and now I am begging you to respond to it, to consider the things that I'm about to say and and make a decision. But he leaves the outcome of that decision completely in their hands and outside of his involvement because their response to the love of God must be something that they choose. It must be something that we choose for ourselves. It cannot be something that's forced upon us from others. Why? Because as is true with all real love, it must be based upon a choice. It cannot be legislated, it cannot be enforced, it cannot be empowered upon or or, or placed upon someone as a burden, but it must simply be something that is offered and then responded to, and that is the very essence and nature of love. And without that choice, it isn't love. One of the most common questions that I get from, you know, curious Christians and sometimes even philosophical skeptics is, why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? If he knew that Adam was going to fail and he knew that the result of that failure would be everything wretched that we see in the world today, then why did God make that tree in the first place? And the answer to that question is right at the core of what we're discussing tonight. Because love demands a choice. Adam had to have a choice if he was going to be in a love relationship with Almighty God. God created man for the very purpose of having a relationship with him that was based on his love. 
Now, in order to do that, in order to create that relationship with the man, God had to do two things. First of all, he had to give him a choice. There had to be two options. Either A, he would love and relate to and lean upon God and and, and receive the love that God was extending and offering towards him. Or B, he would love the world and relate to it and lean upon himself. That was all that the tree of knowledge embodied. A love for the world and a leaning of self and a relationship with the world. So on the one hand, he could either respond to the love of God or he could go the way of the world. He had that choice and that choice was necessary if it was going to be love. The other thing that God had to do in order to create this honest decision that Adam would make is that he had to create him in a place where he was masked from the glory of God. He he couldn't be created in heaven. Because if Adam had been created in heaven, then he would have seen the riches and the glory of Almighty God. His choice would have been influenced by everything that he would receive, all of the outward, you know, things and the glory and the riches and the presence of God, the perfect light and all the rest. And so God had to put Adam in a place where he was masked from all of the riches of God's glory so that that wouldn't influence his choice. And he had to have the choice. Would he respond very simply to my love? Don't you love it when you see an old, ugly, sickly, decrepit, rich old man with a beautiful, young, attractive woman? I mean, you know that that's agape, right? Unconditional. I mean, for her to be with him, that's unconditional. I mean, she just sees right past the wrinkles, you know, and past the, you know, the smells, the old people, you know, and all the rest. And she just loves him for who he is. And you just know that when you see that happening, right? Follow the money, honey, right? If God had created Adam in heaven, then there would always be a question mark because man was a free moral agent as to the motivation behind why he chose God. So God created man upon the earth. Now, if there was no other choice, then God is chosen by default. And there, again, it's not love. And if Adam didn't choose to love God of his own will, then his relationship is robotic obedience rather than sincere interest, and that's not what God was looking for. He had the power to create robots. Sometimes I wonder how I got to marry Georgia. She's here, so I, you know, I can't really say too much about that. But, I mean, if you know her at all, you, you would think the same thing. What in the world is she doing with him? I remember when we got engaged, you know, I kind of got saved and then, you know, probably four or five months later we got engaged. And so she was in college and she was involved with like the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. She had all these people. And I think there was probably about a dozen guys in that university that God promised them that they were going to get to marry Georgia. <laughs> but then all of a sudden I show up one day and she's got a ring on her finger. And one of the guys actually came up to me when I visited her there in school. He goes, who are you? He goes, don't you, I'm sorry, Joy, I know you're here. She's like sinking in her seat. But she goes, he goes, don't you realize that every single person in this group wants to marry her? And now all of a sudden you go, who are you? He said, I, I don't know, you know. And I still feel that way. I still look at her and I wonder how in the world is it, I mean, because I'm not rich. You know, if I was rich, it would all make sense to me. <laughs> but how in the world is it that she, that she could just love me? And then, you know, I just, I just can't grasp it. I can't get my hands around it because it doesn't make sense to me. It's not, I'm not worthy to be married to someone like her. But she said yes. What if, though... <laughs> While we were walking on that frozen pond and it was getting to be about that time when I was going to make that move and ask that question, if in my right hand I held a ring, the symbol of engagement, a sign of love and commitment, you know, and all the rest, and there in my hand is that ring, but in my left hand, hanging slyly, somewhat concealed as a baseball bat. And then I ask her the question with white knuckles gripping that bat in my left and with open hand holding that ring in my right, and I said to her, will you marry me? Be careful how you answer. (laughs) I would forever question the strength of that commitment and the quality of that bond. 
Why? Because it was enforced. It was something there where there was a threat. There was a, a, a presence of imminent danger should she answer the wrong way. And so though she concurred, though she agreed, though she made the right choice, she didn't do it for the right reason. And God, wanting to have a loving relationship with man, had to put him in a place where he would have the choice of whether or not he was going to respond based on love rather than for some other reason. Now, just as Adam had to choose in his day whether or not he would love God and walk in that loving relationship with God, so also do we. And thus, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Our coming to Christ, our faith in Christ, and our service for Christ must be of our own free will. It cannot be by constraint because someone lays upon us a heavy trip that we have to serve God, that God has great needs. And if someone doesn't meet these needs, then these things are going to be undone and the kingdom of God is going to go down the tubes. The kingdom of God needs your money. And if you don't give your money to the kingdom of God, then God's going to go bankrupt. And wouldn't that be great for you to get to heaven and find out God went bankrupt because of you? Oh, I don't want God to go bankrupt and say you're reaching for... I, you know, and be, no, you're being constrained. That's not what God's looking for. It can only be something that's of your free will. God does not like begrudging service. And so Paul lays it out before them. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, it has to be a choice that you make. The second thing concerning this response that we have towards God that Paul initiates us with here is that the motive behind our responding to God must be based in who He is and what He's done, not what we'll get or what He'll do. Notice as Paul goes on in the same breath, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, when we want to motivate someone to do something, you know, we have kids and you probably have people in your lives, whether they're your kids or your parents or, or, or somebody that you have to sometimes somewhat manipulate and try to get them to do something. And we learn pretty quickly in our lives how to get people to respond, how to get people to do what we want them to do. We bribe them. You know, if it's our kids, we tell them that we'll give them some treat or some treasure or some pleasure or something uh, along that way. There's got to be some kind of catalyst. Maybe it's fear. We'll use fear. Anything we can to motivate those people that we need to move to get them to do what, what we've we got to get them to do. Well, Paul here is seeking to motivate a group of people to respond to the love of God. Now, what does he use as the tool of his motivation? He says, I beseech you by the mercies of God. The thing that I'm holding up in front of you, that I'm demonstrating and unveiling and pulling back the curtain for you to see so that you can make an honest and sober decision about how you're going to respond to God is His mercy. I want you to see His mercies. Well, what are the mercies of God that Paul is talking about? Well, it's everything that he's said prior to this in this book. Everything that he's revealed about the character and nature of God previous to this in Romans. That you were a lost wretched sinner, miserable in your existence, hopeless in your path, hell-bound in your destiny, that that's where you were headed, but that God intervened and He sent His Son to trade places with you, to absorb the punishment of your sins, and also to give you the gift of eternal life. That God took upon Himself the sin that you committed, that He paid the price for it, and in return, He gave to you the life that He purchased by His righteousness. He offers you heaven. Now, this trading of places with you taking your sin and giving you His life was completely an act of grace. You couldn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, and you can't repay it. And now, not only did God do that for you, but that He's now working in your life to change you and transform you and to make you like His Son. He tells us that all things in your life are now working together for good if you're in Him and called of Him and you love Him. That there's no longer condemnation for your sins, but that you're sealed and secured. That nothing can separate you from His love. That you are tucked in, and God's favor and His blessing is upon your life. And that all of that comes to you simply by your putting your faith and your trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you. And all of that, as Paul gives it to us in these chapters, sums up for us who God is, that He's the unconditional lover of your soul, and that also, what are His mercies? 
And it's all summed up in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what Paul is telling us here as he beseeches us according to the mercies of God is that the only acceptable motivation behind our love towards God and our responding to Him in anything that we do, the only motivation that's acceptable is that we're motivated by who He is and what He's done for us. In other words, the love of God, His mercies. That His mercies motivate us. Let me ask you tonight, and I ask myself at the same time, why do you follow Christ? Why do you call yourself a Christian? Why do you serve Him? What's your motive? I often ask myself the question from time to time, reminding and just introspectively ask the question, is God to me an end or is He a means to some other end? In other words, do I just love God? Is God what I'm seeking? Is He what, I, what, what I'm pursuing, what I'm wanting? Or am I simply following Him because of something that I hope to get from Him? Is He an end in and of Himself? Or is He to me a means to some other end? Am I simply using God to get my agenda done? Or to have my life set in a certain way? As we read the Gospels, we see that there were multitudes that followed Christ because of the miracles and the meals that they received. There were many that followed Him because it was the trend of the time. There were thousands of people that were flocking to hear His words and see the things that He said and hear the gracious words that came out of His mouth. It was cool to follow Christ at that time. There were many that came to Christ because they needed to have their needs met. They came for healing. They came for deliverance. You know the stories where ten lepers would come and you know nine of them would get their healing and they would go their way and there would only be one that would come back and even say thank you. They weren't coming to Christ for Christ. They weren't coming to Christ because they loved God. They had something that they needed and they knew that if they came to Him they would have their need met and so that need motivated their coming to Christ. There were some that came to Christ because they sought political revolution. They saw Him as the way and the means whereby they could throw off the yoke of Roman oppression that they were experiencing as a nation. And so they came to Christ because they saw in Him the potential of someone who was a leader that could be followed that would throw off this oppression. And so for political revolution. Even the apostles, the twelve that Jesus handpicked and called, as you read their stories, you see that at first some of them were following for purposes of prosperity. Things that they would receive. Some were following with hopes of gaining some position or some authority in his kingdom as he would set it up. Lord, grant that we could be on your right hand and on your left when we come into your kingdom. Their motivation was popularity, pride, power. But amazingly, all of these professed lovers of Christ that followed him and flocked to him throughout his earthly ministry left him when they saw the hope of their ambition hanging upon a cross. When it didn't work out the way that they once thought, they all forsook Him and fled, the Gospels say. Where were the thousands that came to be fed when Jesus was there bleeding and His life was being spilled out upon the ground? Where were even the twelve that said, We have left all to follow you? Of the twelve, there was only one, the Apostle John, who was there as Jesus hung. Because all of the things that they came to receive, that they hoped to get, that they wanted to see happen in their lives, all of that seemed dim and hopeless as he was hanging upon the cross. And they checked out and they said, we'll see you later. But when John, the Apostle John, saw the blood dripping to the earth, he understood something. Who he was and what he was doing came into a different light. It wasn't to revolutionize the world politically. It wasn't simply to meet the needs of mankind humanitarianly. But he understood that he came as the lover of our soul to redeem us and save us from our sins. He understood something that day and something changed within his heart. When Peter, the man who said, you're the Christ and was told, you're going to have the keys, Peter, in Peter's city. Yeah, I get to be Pope, you know. Yeah. When Peter 
who denied the Lord and said, I'm going fishing, and he walked away because the hope of his ambition was hanging upon the cross. When he heard the words come out of Jesus' mouth, Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. I love you, Peter. You can be restored. You're forgiven. When Peter heard those words, something changed within his heart forever. It was no longer for any other reason. Anything that he would get, anything that he would have, any position that he would attain, any condition that would surround his life, none of that mattered anymore. He encountered the lover of his soul. He encountered the one who spilled his blood to redeem him from his sins. And Peter would never look back again. He would never turn away and say, even on the night before he was to be killed, Peter would not even flinch. He wouldn't even lie awake for one minute thinking, what's going to become of me? He knew where his love was. He stood secure. It was no longer what will we get and what will he do for us, but rather it became look who he is and look what he's done. Their relationship with God, as they understood the cross and what happened when his blood was spilled upon the ground, went from that which God is a means to my end to God is the end. There is no other thing. There is no other need. There is no other want that I have within my life, but simply just to know him and to experience his love within my life. Oh, the young lady cries as... She drifts further and further from Christ. She says, I, I thought that he was going to be, to me, the one who provides a spouse. I thought he was going to arrange certain things within my life a certain way and that I was finally going to meet that man. And you know what? It just didn't work out. The, the Christian thing didn't work for me. I tried that. I went that way for a while. And you know, it just didn't happen. It wasn't my cup of tea, she says. And time's getting on. And you know, I I really need to find someone. And my life is passing me by. And she drifts away from Christ. Why? Because her motive was mixed. The businessman says as, as he walks further and further away from the Lord and drifts further and further from his wife and his family, he says, well, I thought coming to Christ was going to be a blessing to me financially. I really believe that if I did things God's way and I was honest and upright and I ran a smooth shop that everything was going to work out good, but it's just not going that way. And I really need to commit the time and the effort and the energy back into getting that right again. And so, drifting from the Lord, he says, it just didn't work out the way I wanted. What happened? His motives were mixed. There was something that was wrong. The only foundation for a fruitful, lasting life in the Lord is that we be motivated and moved only by His love. Who He is. He is an end in and of Himself. Loving Him for who He is and based upon what He's done for us. Now listen, He is a blesser and He is a giver. There's no doubt about that as you just consider even in your own life the things that God has done for you. But I promise you this, that at some point you are going to see the hope that you have for something in an earthly context hanging upon the cross. You're going to come into a time when everything that you want or that is for your good or to your advantage is not going to be looking too good. And at that time it will be revealed. Was he an end or a means? And if God himself is not your prize based on what he is to you and what he's done for you, then you too will find yourself drifting slowly further and further away from the Lord. But when you see Him for who He is, when you understand as the prophet Isaiah describes it, Isaiah chapter 52 verse 10, he says, The Lord hath made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And when you understand that God rolled up His sleeves, and you've got to understand that because the Bible says that he flung the stars into their place with his fingertips, Psalm 8. And the Bible says that man, that the intricate nature of what makes up you and me, that that was done with his hand, that that was finger work and handiwork to God, that it was nothing. But it says that he rolled up his sleeves in bringing us to salvation. The work of the cross required a little bit more. For God to demonstrate his love in the powerful, impacting way that he did, it took a little bit more effort on his part. And when we see that, when we realize it for what it is, you'll never be the same again. And your motivation will last. 
And you'll see the salvation of God fruitfully at work in your life. And Paul tells us that the motive behind our love towards God and our service for God must be who He is based upon what He's done. It's the only acceptable motive for Christian love and Christian service. Well, you say, okay, well, we know that, uh, you know, we have to choose this love. And we know that the motive has to be his mercies. We got those things. But you said at the beginning of this that God's love motivated him to do something. That, that, that God actually had an action that was associated with his feeling, the, 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 the love that, that he had. So what is our action? The cross demonstrated God's love towards us. So what action on our behalf demonstrates our love towards God? And this is number three in our verse as we work our way slowly through it. And that is that the motion of our response-driven love towards God is that we present our bodies to Him. Paul goes on, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, and this is what he tells us to do, this is our response. He says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God. Now, as much as it intrigues me what Paul says here, it equally intrigues me what Paul doesn't say here. Because I would think that at this time, Paul's got us. You know, he could pretty much say anything he wanted. And, and, you know, if we're listening and we're tuned in and we understand, we'd say, okay, whatever. But listen to what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, now this is what you do. You're to join the church. And you're to fill out a pledge card, talking, you know, discussing how much you're going to contribute and how you're going to keep the kingdom of God moving along financially. And uh, you need to find something to do. Help out in the Sunday school, you know, signed up for the food pantry, you know, go down to the mission, you know, start serving in, in some way. Get your name on some volunteer lists. The lawn needs mowing at the church. You know, just find something to do in some way to serve God and show Him how much you love Him. Get on the mission field. It's time to start some street evangelism. Go out and wear a sandwich board and tell everybody, turn or burn. You know, you, know, you just got to get out there and start doing something here because we're responding to God's love. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say, go clean up your life. First thing is just clean your life, clean yourself out. Go through your house and clean out your house. You know, change your wardrobe, change your, you know, what you're watching on TV, change your habits, your entertainment, your lifestyle, just change it all. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, go make everything right that you messed up in your past. Go fix all the, you know, the, the things that you said to people and all the broken relationships and all the, you know, just, he doesn't tell us any of that, none of that, nothing. But he says something so much more powerful, so much more impacting, and something that will accomplish all the rest of it in the process. He simply says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. That's what you do. That's, what, that's how you respond. Just present your bodies to him. Well, what does this mean? Well, again, it hasn't ceased from being your choice. He says, you present it. That it has to be something that you do. He doesn't force you or command you or require you. He just simply says that you can. That what he did for you is that Jesus, he willingly offered his body as a sacrifice for you so that you could live. And now he invites you to present your body to him. An act of willing love in response to his act of willing love. Also, he, pre he invites you to present your body. Now, you say, what need does God have of my body? How can my body in any way serve and accomplish the purposes of God? Well, consider this with me. The Bible speaks very clearly that the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, that they are one, but yet they are three distinct persons. They are one, yet they are distinct. The Father is depicted as one who is seated upon the throne. Now, as much as we can gather from what we see in Scripture, he's seated there, he has a body. Therefore, he has no need of yours. The Son, we understand the Son. We see him in the Scripture. Even after the resurrection, he says, Look, feel the holes in my hand. Touch the hole in my side. Look, see, I'm flesh and bone. He says, he has a body. He has absolutely no need of yours. His is perfectly fine. But there is one member of the Godhead, as we look in Scripture, 
this holy trinity, that is absolutely unembodied. Interesting. Why would there be a member of the Godhead that is unembodied? Of course, you know I'm speaking of the Holy Spirit. Well, whose body, pray tell, do you think He desires to use? Yours and mine as we present our bodies to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul writes and he says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own? Again, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That as you present your body as that living sacrifice to God, He says that He's going to indwell you. That His Spirit is going to come and take up residency and live inside your life. And when the Spirit of God receives a holy and acceptable living sacrifice, a body that's placed before Him wherein He can indwell it, inhabit it, and work through it, then all of who God is becomes imparted unto you. All of His resources. And you are then uh, able to receive all the promises concerning His Spirit. You're able to be filled with His Spirit. You're able to be empowered by His Spirit. Led by the Spirit. Gifted by the Spirit. In fellowship with God because His Spirit dwells within you. Conformed into the image of Christ by His Spirit. Everything that the Bible says that the Spirit will do within your life is yours. As you present your body as a living sacrifice unto God. And Paul says that that's our service. That's what we're to do. The motion or the action behind our response towards God is that we simply present ourselves to Him. It's interesting to me also that he says there that you're to present your body to God. Because oftentimes, you know, I think that sometimes my mind is what God's really looking for. He wants my thoughts. He wants my opinions. He's interested in my ingenuity and my intellectual craftiness and, you know, ways to get things done. It's interesting. It doesn't say that. God doesn't say he wants my head. He says, give me your body. I remember when I was first learning the trades, you know, I worked with this old Italian man and, and you know, I was really ambitious and I was excited about the things that I was learning. And, and of course, I was full of all kinds of ideas of better ways to do things that, you know, this guy's been doing since, uh, you know, 500 years ago. And I remember one time he got fed up with all my ideas and all my offerings that I was giving to him. And he stopped what he was doing and he looked at me and he goes, Huh. I get a pater from here up, you get a pater from here down. <laughs> and I said, I get it. <laughs> Listen, God's not interested in, in your ideas, your thoughts, your plans, your, your ingenuity, your craftiness, your intellect. He doesn't want any of that. But he says, if you'll present your body to me, you'll be amazed at what I can do. If you just give yourself, just lend yourself, completely sacrificed, given over, then I'll take up residency within you and you'll see what I can do in your life. The third thing that we notice about this living sacrifice is that it's alive. Now, I think this is the hardest part. See, we're, we're doing the book of Revelation right now with the kids. I'm going through and I'm taking a chapter at a time with them and we're just reading through all the things that are going to happen during the tribulation. And there's a lot of death. And there's a lot of blood. And so we're talking about martyrdom and people that give their life and all this kind of thing. And, and, you know, as I'm kind of reading these things, I'm thinking, what's going on in their little heads? You know, here we're talking about people that are getting axed, you know, and really just killed, guillotined for, for the sake of Christ. And, and as we're talking about these things, you know, I'm, I'm seeking to, to say to them over and over again, listen, is it a bad thing to die for Christ? And, and of course they say, well, no, Dad, no, it's not. I say, no, it's actually the easiest thing that you can do. Because, you know, you, you stay steadfast and you say, I'm not going to deny Christ, and you get killed for your faith, you go immediately into the presence of the Lord. You're in paradise. You're in heaven. You're stepping through a doorway into eternity, and it's going to be 20 million times better than anything that we can have on earth. Well, as I'm looking at that, I'm like, wow, it's really easy to die for him. It's really hard to live for him. I really wish this was just a dying sacrifice because that would be so much easier, but it's a living sacrifice and therefore it's something that has to be done daily. The problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps getting off the altar. You know, I can, I can just see God and he's just, you know, they're interviewing him and saying, well, what's the deal with this living sacrifice? And he just says, well, the only problem with it is that they keep getting off. 
Because that's what we do, right? We give ourselves to the Lord, and then we get off. You know, we're dedicated to Him, you know, during the weekend, but then during the week, you know, we kind of got to do our own thing, and we kind of drift. We go, where's that altar? And God looks, and He says, where's that body? You know. We constantly have this choice to make. And again, that's why it's so crucial that our motive is love, that we love Him. Notice also that He says that it's holy and acceptable. You may be sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, well, listen, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I am far from holy and I feel even farther from acceptable. What are you talking about? In the Old Testament, when you would bring a sacrifice to the priest and it was going to be offered, you know, as, a, as an offering, a sacrifice burned upon the altar, the first thing that would happen is that the priest would inspect it. He would look for blemishes, imperfections, anything that kind of made that sheep weird. And if the sheep was accepted, it meant that it was without blemish, and then it was declared holy. This is holy. It is now consecrated. It's been accepted by God because it's free of blemish. But that's Old Testament. That's not the way it works in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it isn't the lack of blemishes and imperfections that make us acceptable. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. The Bible says that our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west, that it was absorbed with him, that our sin was placed upon him. And therefore, we are acceptable to God. Not because we're without blemish and perfect, but because of what he has done for us. God accepts us because of Christ. And then notice also that he says that it's acceptable, but it's also unto God. You're not giving yourself to the church. You're not giving yourself to a man or to an organization or to a movement. You're giving yourself to God. And ultimately, what this means is that you are handing Him your life so that He can begin to work in and through you. That as you give yourself to Him, He's going to begin His work and you're going to see the work and the person of God taking shape within your life. And then finally, as we close... The mentality behind our response to God, Paul says as he closes the verse, he says that this is your reasonable service. That this is a reasonable service that, that it is for you to present your bodies to God. The picture is that of you standing before Almighty God. And as you stand there, and just in your mind, you know, go there, and you're standing there before God, and as He comes to you, He presents a scale. You know, the balances where, where they would weigh things out and look for equality between, you know, product and cash. And they would weigh it out. And God presents this scale and he puts it there before you. And on one side of the scale, God places your life. It's all of you, your person, your personality, your education and your background, your talents and your achievements, your hopes and your dreams, your future plans. And also at the same time, all of your darkness. All of your sin, all of your failures, all of your, your shortcomings, you know, whether they be great or small, everything that embodies and encompasses who you are is placed on one side of the scale. And then as you're there standing before the Lord on the other side of the scale, He places Himself. All of who He is, His person and His personality, all of His power and resource, all of His talent and achievement, all of His plans for your life, His thoughts and intentions for you, what He can do and what He can make of all that you are. And at the same time, all of His righteousness is placed there upon the scale. His wisdom and His ways, everything that makes God who He is, all that He has and is, is placed there on the other side of that scale before you. And all of a sudden you have this thing beginning to teeter. All of you versus all of God. And as you stand there before Him and you see these two things weighed out before you, God looks at you and He whispers these words. He says, I'll trade you. I'll take all that you are, and in return, I will give you all that I am. All of who I am, and all that it means. Want to trade? All that you are for all that I am, all that you have for all that I have, all that you want for your life, for all that I want and can do for it. And Paul looks at all of that as he closes this opening phrase to us, and he says, listen, it's a very reasonable thing for you to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. 
It's a really good deal that you're going to get as you give your life to Him. Maybe that's you here tonight, and the musicians are going to come as we close, but perhaps you see yourself in that picture. God is speaking to you tonight as you see yourself standing upon that scale. And in your heart, you know that your life is not what it should be, and that you're not right with God, that things are amiss, things aren't right. And He's inviting you tonight. He's beseeching you. God Himself is beseeching you to come into this love relationship with Himself. He's not inviting you into a religion. He's not inviting you into a church or church membership. But He's inviting you into the very purpose for which you were created. To know Him and to know His love within your life. The prophet Isaiah spoke to the nation on God's behalf when they were in a wretched place. He says that they were sinful, that they were a seed of corruptors, they were rebellious, that their whole head was sick, that they were full of putrefying sores, that they were desolate, devoured, and overthrown. It's a grim picture that he paints concerning the condition that they were in. But then he says these words with the backdrop of that situation. He says, God says this to you. He says, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. And Paul is making the same plea to us tonight on behalf of God. He's saying, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. As we close the service tonight, as the song is being played and we stand and close in prayer, the pastors will be down here in the front of the church. And and if you want to receive Christ as your Lord, if you want to say, God, I want to make that trade, I want to take all of what I am and give it to you in exchange for all of who you are because of this great love that you've demonstrated. As you come forward, as we begin to sing the song and talk with us here, we're going to lead you in a prayer where we'll, we'll, we'll... show you. You just say to God that I'm a sinner and I need to repent and and we'll lead you. We'll take you there. And the Bible says that you'll be saved. God will meet with you right here. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're a Christian, but you've drifted. You've had mixed motives. There's been things in your life that have gone a certain way and you found yourself drifting from God a bit. Maybe tonight the Spirit would speak to your heart and say, perhaps I've been a little bit more of a means to you. Perhaps Your relationship with me is based on something that you thought you would get rather than simply getting just me. Maybe tonight God's calling you to get back on the altar. You want to come and just pray, rededicate, and give your life to the Lord. Bring you back into intimate fellowship. What better place to get back on the altar than at the altar? So let's all stand and close in song.